of course I voted. I got the thing in the mail and I mailed it back, even though there were no names on it. Just a lot of questions about who lives here. It, oh, hi, and uh, welcome to Off Road, an RLTP podcast with the increasingly confused Pete Pomisano. I don't know about you, but I am learning so much from this podcast. This change in format has really awakened me to how dumb I am, how many things I just don't know. And I, and I hope it's serving to educate you to some degree, too. Of course, it's not the purpose to educate. We're here sort of to entertain, but also to uh, tell you what's going on in the rest of the world with all of the rest of the cultural organizations in Western New York, and of course, with our theater friends as well. And, and this episode, we've got some great interviews going. First of all, we have the man who started this whole thing, this whole off-road RLTP podcast. And the man's name is Scott Behrend. Now, maybe you did not realize this, but Scott Behrend, in addition to being the brain behind the off-road podcast, is also the co-founder and executive and artistic director of the Road Less Traveled Productions. You knew that in Road Less Traveled Theater. So we'll be talking to Scott today because it was finally time to talk to Scott Behrend on the podcast. And also because we want to know what's going on with Road Less Traveled Productions. Also on the podcast, we have people from two very interesting cultural organizations here in Western New York. And the first, of course, is the very famous Buffalo Philharmonic Orchestra. And from them, we have its executive director, Dan Hart. Very interesting guy to talk to. And also from the Buffalo Science Museum, Marissa Wigglesworth. Yeah, that's her name. Marissa Wigglesworth is the president and CEO of the Buffalo Museum of Science. And then, as if that isn't already enough, we'll be talking to Kate Locanti Alcacer, who will be taking over on July 1st the role of artistic director of the Irish Classical Theater Company taking over from Vincent O'Neill, its founder and the man who is retiring after 30 years in the business. Congratulations to Vincent. And then, of course, we have a mystery guest. A message from the bunker from a mystery guest. See if you can guess who it is. If you don't recognize this voice, eh, you're probably not a member of the Buffalo Theater community. So there. But let's start it all off with Scott Barron from Road Less Traveled Productions, the RLTP Theater over there, brand new theater on Main Street, which has been dark like all the rest of them since March. And Scott's going to tell us what's going on with Road Less Traveled for the upcoming season. Enjoy. My understanding is you're changing the name of the company to Crisis Theater. <laughs> yes, our uh, our third major crisis in five years. <laughs> Unbelievable. But it's okay. We've we're we're prepared now for crisis. So uh, yeah, if there was ever a time that we needed to, well, let's put it this way. I'm glad that we finished the first two crises before we actually got to the third crisis. So, but you're sharing the third crisis with every other theater in town and every other theater around the world. So uh, yeah, some consolation there. So, yeah, tell us what's going on, and, and you're going to announce something in the near future, which is actually in our near past. 
Right. So we've been working on a, a strategic plan of sorts. So what we want to try and do for the next 12 to 18 months, Gene and I have been working on this plan and then our uh, the World Less Traveled Board has been working with us and then uh, voted on it last week. And again, we've just announced what that looks like. You know, our number one concern, of course, is the safety of our patrons um, and the safety of our artists. And we've also tried to take into account what reopening really looks like. And we want to give ourselves the best chance for success uh, at that point. You know, are we going to be opening at 50% capacity? Are we still going to be social distancing? Um, Our hope was that we can really come back here as close to full strength as possible. And the other thing that we've really tried to take into account here is that we don't want to open a show and then basically have no one come. What are people's perceptions of the moment going to be like? And are people still going to be concerned with their safety? So we've tried to try to take all of these factors into account. And basically what we've come up with is that we're going to postpone our 2021 season. Let me make sure I get that correct. 2020-2021 season. Right. That was going to start this September with Murder Ballad and then end with At Home at the Zoo. That entire season then will be moved forward to September of 2021. And we're going to move the whole five-play package, five-play season as a package. And we also thought that was important because that season was very specifically curated. Also, we had made commitments to a whole number of artists and production people to do that season. And I wanted to keep those jobs intact. So when we do come back, people can count on the fact that we're still going to be doing those shows. And then our hope is that if we are able to reopen at some level in the spring of 2021, which I guess in everybody's most recent best case scenarios, that looks like it may be a possibility. Uh, We want to bring back Hand to God, which of course we had to close halfway through the run when the pandemic hit. And of course it was selling all kinds of tickets and doing great business for us. So we'd like to try and bring that back. Of course. Um, and also just let that team finish out that run because they were, they were doing a terrific job. And then we also had to cancel our, or postpone our production of the curious case of the Watson intelligence, which we are also hoping that we can bring back sometime in the spring or even the summer. And then we've got like our three one night fundraisers, our screen to stage series, which is a reading of Beverly Hills cop, our 10 minute play festival. And of course our big annual fundraiser, Buffalo stories, the life of Robert Joya. So this is almost literally taking a pause because you're actually going to just forget forget that this last, what it will be, 12 months even happened. And you're going to go right back sort of to where you, where you ended up. And this sounds like the most solid plan. I don't know whether it's the most, whether it will be the most successful, whether it'll be the safest, but it sounds like a solid plan to sort of bring back everything that was missed as if these past, what will be 12 months, almost never happened, which is the way I, the way I'm sort of hoping that we can look at it. It just, it was a blip in time and uh, we're moving on. The questions I wanted to ask you earlier though are, so what's going on at the theater? Is, is it just sitting there sort of abandoned? Yeah. I mean, it's literally stuck in time, uh, like hand to God shut down. And uh, we've been down there a few times, of course, since then and uh, check on stuff and et cetera. But uh, yeah, it's a little creepy actually. Cause you know, <laughs> it's, it's like everything just stopped. Frozen in time frozen in time. But hopefully, uh, I think that's also another good reason why we want to bring Hand to God back first, if possible, because we can just restart the engine, hopefully. 
So, well, not to bring up finances or anything, but is is there anybody still on the payroll? Well, obviously, you and Gina are you the only two? Is it, is there anybody else necessary? Is there maintenance necessary? Is there building ma- maintenance? Uh, once we shut the doors and turn the lights off, I mean, there's there's nothing else down there necessarily that we have to upkeep too much. I mean, we're going to actually be doing some work down there and finishing some other stuff, sort of clean up, etc. But yeah, Gina and I have always been the only full-time employees, and luckily, we've been able to figure out a plan here that we think can keep us uh, both activated until we restart here, so to speak. The only reason that that's even possible at this point is that given all the crises that we have had, you know, basically leaving the market arcade, moving to 500 Pearl, uh, suddenly uh, creating a whole new theater at 500 Pearl, and then once again, suddenly having to leave 500 Pearl and then build a brand new theater. You know, we had a capital campaign of over $680,000. And luckily, we were able to finish fundraising for that literally only a couple of months before the pandemic hit, which I'm extremely grateful for, because uh, I think it would be a real uphill climb at this point to be fundraising again. However, that said, that also the the work that we've been doing for the last two to three years, you know, has left us at least in a good in good position to be able to try and ride out the storm fiscally speaking. But if this had happened to us two or three years ago, I think we'd be in a much more difficult situation than we are now. Well, you've talked a number of times about how elegant development had been so helpful to you in first in moving over to the Pearl Street location and then in finding this location. And at this point, are they and they were still doing some construction on the building, were they not? Yeah, there were still some things that we were still doing. We're actually still finishing one of our major equipment upgrades. We still have some sound and lighting equipment that we still are, are in the process of purchasing and then installing. That's like the last phase. But the good news there is that Billy Palladino and Elegant Development were terrific partners with us and made it possible for us to basically make that transition quickly. And and uh, I guess the silver lining is that we were able to finish paying off the, the bulk of the construction costs then in the midst of <laughs> a global pandemic. <laughs> Yeah, that that's pretty amazing. Are they your landlords, basically, or how does they that... are? They are our landlord too. Here's a question that I've been wondering about: Do you feel that RLTP, that the theater, being such a small theater, it's about ninety seats, do you feel that in this whole situation, that's a, going to be an advantage or a disadvantage? In in what ways might it be a good thing, and in what ways might it be a bad thing? Well, so we have ninety eight seats now, <laughs> and I feel like. There are certain things that I think might help us if the reopening schemes suddenly are in sort of these capacity-driven formats that we were in as things closed, because we feel like we can still probably operate at 50% capacity if that's what we were, that we were up against for a period of time. You do. We do. And that said, I mean, the part of this plan that we've put together is that if we're still at 50% capacity and we, we can open hand to God, maybe we run hand to God for five, six, seven weeks, you know, to also help sort of balance the idea that we can only do 50% of the house, mm-hmm. which if we, were, if we were locked into a full season at that point, I wouldn't have control over dates, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So 
And is that something that you feel that is an advantage that Road Less Traveled has that others might not have? Well, I, I mean, it really depends on if people are going to move their, you know, how much they want to uh, move their seasons. And I mean, I know for us, we've reached out now to our, our subscribers and our and our single ticket holders from last season. And, and then the ones that already bought season subscriptions now for this coming season. And most people I think are, have been totally understanding and understand what we're up against here. And I think appreciate the idea that, Hey, we're just basically going to move the whole thing forward a year. So they're willing to, you know, I don't think a lot of people necessarily were looking for refunds right now. It's more just sadness of, wow, we're we're not going to have some live theater for a while. And so what you're saying also is that the, the building itself is just not incurring any costs right now. Oh, we're paying rent. Oh, well, okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's still going on, but you're not incurring any other maintenance costs or cleanup or those sorts of things. No. Because I was thinking that has to be some kind of advantage that you don't have this giant theater to deal with. But on the other hand, you're still paying rent and it's have you considered any other methods of revenue streams that you that oh yeah so uh and this is also something we're we've announced in part is that we are working on three digital based productions for the fall that we haven't announced fully but we've got we're working on sort of a sequel to our buffalo rises show that we did back in 2013 which featured uh six local playwrights all doing 10 minute plays and I think how we're going to do this is that they're going to be audio-based plays. And actually, we'll probably do them some conjunction with the podcast, I would think, at some some point. So I think that's exciting. And and to, to get sort of some specific uh, Western New York-oriented stories out there in the fall. John Alston and I have been, I, I'm, I'm not going to reveal what this project is about, but John Alston and I have been talking about a project that we think is really tailored for the Zoom medium in a live capacity. Hmm. So we would do this at that production in, in, a, in a live capacity. And I think that's going to be fun. And then um, we're also talking about uh, maybe doing some sort of an illusion-based show also in the, the Zoom medium. And uh, we're working with a local magician right now to see if we can develop that project. And that would be almost a little bit more of an interactive experience for our patrons as well. So we'll see. We'll see what comes up with, you know, it's, it's so difficult because I know that the world is getting also bombarded with a lot of digital content right now. And God knows if some people want to have any more time on Zoom because, you know, people's lives are all on Zoom now. But we think that we might be able to bring something different here that in a bridge capacity to hopefully before we get back to doing it live on stage. So these things would all be Zoom oriented. They would of course be online, but they'd all be utilizing the Zoom format. Except for the, the 10 minute play fest. I think we're going to record those as audio pieces oh, okay. and just release those as audio. Yep. That's all you can reveal at this point. Uh, I assume that things are just changing every day. Yeah, I mean, I just read an article this morning that I posted on my Facebook page about uh, from the like a leading expert in this field who wrote a book recently that talks about pandemics like this. And, you know, it was interesting to hear his candid thoughts about how fast and, and what he thinks could happen. I think one of the things that everybody's trying to get a handle on now, not only in how they reopen, but um, will there be sort of a a resurgence of sorts yes. from this. A second wave. That's be the latest. 
thing that I'm sort of focused on because I think if that's the case, you know, I'm hoping that our plan will allow for a lot of those variables if they take place to take place and then people we can recover, so to speak, from that again and then hopefully be ready to open. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Because you have actually literally postponed the whole thing until at the earliest February or or even March, there is some buffer space in there. Because, you know, you look at the governor and our uh, map is going down and our number of infections is going down, but then they compare it to the rest of the country and it, it's not like that. So I think we're really ripe for the possibility of something turning around and going south on us, making things worse again so that we have to start this whole thing all over again. Well, I guess there's some historical precedents with viruses like this that this uh, article I read today talks about. And yeah, the so-called herd immunity is not necessarily. Right. He talks about that. And, and also just how fast are we going to be able to vaccinate people? And then how quickly will that get done? You know, I mean, but, uh, you know, this is all new territory and we've got to try and adapt, I guess, as much as possible. But like I said at the top, I mean, I think it's really important that we think about everybody's safety first because, yeah, I just think that's the most important thing. So, Have you been in contact with other theaters, not just in the area, but around is there some kind of a, a congregation of groups that people can? Well, I mean, I, I still have a weekly check-in with my all-for-one partners. So Irish Classical and Toy and Musical Fair and Shays, you know, because we, we've been basically meeting once a week for three years. <laughs> so that's continued on Zoom and it gives us an opportunity to sort of bounce information off of each other. Gina's still very involved with TAB and she's also getting sort of that information conduit you know, if in the big regional circuit, I thought it was very telling that the, the Guthrie Theater in Minneapolis, which is one of the largest regional theaters in the country, came out weeks ago now and said that they had canceled the whole fall part of their season and were hoping to come back in the spring of 2021. Yes, I was wondering if there are any others who are actually not postponing as you are, but who are actually going to try to make a go of it in in the fall well i mean i heard that there's a couple of theaters massachusetts maybe or connecticut where they were going to do like a one-man show and have everybody socially distanced and maybe some of those maybe even happened already but because all eyes will be on whatever they do yeah. to see what works and what doesn't work to see whether what's successful and what isn't and what well we didn't have to take it this far on you know or we didn't have to do this much but we do have to do more of this or this is how we dealt with the lavatory situation yeah. this is how we dealt with the ticket box office situation this is how we dealt with lines out the door whoever's doing this as i said to you and somebody else a few days ago is going to be under the microscope because we want to see how they're doing i'm just wondering you've made the decision not to start up again until the spring almost february march whatever and I'm wondering how many others are going to take a chance, take a risk, and see how things are going to go, because we'll all be watching. Well, outside of just, of course, number one, the safety concerns, I mean, if, if the audience is still having to wear masks, but the performers aren't, what does that mean, you know, in the grand scheme of things? Um, Especially in a theater like yours where the performers are close to the audience. Yeah, I, I agree. They're very close. I mean, I, I joke about this now. I've joked about this recently, but it's very true and uh, tricky, which is, you know, you don't want the action on stage just watching two people actually get closer than six feet 
where people are starting to lean in and be so, so trepidatious just watching that they forget anything else that's actually going on, which I definitely think could, could be an issue. It's true. I, I watch some things on TV right now and I go, oh, they just shook hands. That's not going to happen. Close. Oh, they just did this. It's strange how our mindset has become so aware of, of touching and proximity. I also think that the, the other part of that conversation, which nobody really knows how this is going to go yet, is how are people going to respond once we are open? You know, I mean, what's the economy look like? How long is it going to be before people feel safe? You know, where, yeah, there's no masks or whatnot. Because I think uh, the, the biggest disaster at this point for any theater as they reopen is that you invest all this money and time into putting up a production now, and then no one comes. You know, I mean, that's that's the real... That's a big deal. That's the real disaster. Right. You already cut your house down to 50%. And then you end up with 10% because everybody's afraid to come in. That's why pushing this, I think, as far as we can, you know, if, if we can successfully do that, hopefully it gives us the best opportunity. Well, I think it's a really smart plan. Is there anything else you want to say in terms of, do you need any help with anything? Is there anything you'd want people, any other messages you'd want to get out to people? Would you like to apologize for foisting off-road with Peter Pomisano on the, the public? <laughs> no, I would like to say that I'm so, I'm so pleased that off-road has been so well-received. I mean, and we came up with this idea a while ago, and Peter, you definitely did not think at the beginning that this was the right job for you, but I'm here to say it was the right job for you, buddy. Well, it's kept me sane during all of this. Yeah. But you know what is interesting? Of course, we're a podcast unlike many in that we, we have no aspirations to become a worldwide phenomenon. <laughs> we're, we're, we're a Buffalo podcast. Yeah. We don't have commercials, except for the little blurb I do for Road Less Traveled. But I mean, we don't have commercials. We're not trying to become world famous. We're not trying to, we're trying to just get to the Buffalo audience and now putting all these other cultural organizations in, which was your idea. I said, what are we going to do with the podcast now? And you came up with the other idea. So I give you uh, credit for that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's worked out great. I mean, and I, you know, one of the best things about that, what you just described, Peter, is that we've been able to keep it uh, you know, nimble, you know, and to adjust and, you know, be flexible with what's going on right now, which I think has been great. And I'm, I'm so proud of the fact that we're able to get these conversations and help the culturals also get some of their message out there right now, because let's face it, I mean, there aren't many cultures right now getting any sort of media attention amidst uh, all of the other crises that are going on right now. And this is, I think, terrific, you know, and hopefully it'll help give everybody a chance to let everybody know what's going on, you know. Uh, before I let you go, I, tell me the story behind naming the theater after the Robert Frost poem? <laughs> well, it was a long time ago now, but when I first started Road Less Traveled, I came up with the name. John Elston, of course, uh, helped me found Road Less Traveled. You know, I had been working in Buffalo Theater for about five years, I think, at that point, four to five years before we started Road Less Traveled. And I had worked a lot at the Irish Classical. And um, at that point... New work really was the focus of what, what I was really interested in. And then when John and I, through our friendship doing some other things, started talking more, I asked him if he would write a play. 
which he did called Project, first play he ever wrote, and we produced it ourselves. And while we were sort of working on that, I had hit upon the name Road Less Traveled Productions because I felt this was going to be something different than had been seen yet. And the work that we wanted to tackle, the issues, the range, so to speak, of what we really wanted to tackle was not something being done at Buffalo, in Buffalo at that time. Do you want to say anything about the Road Less Traveled's sort of commitment to diversity? Because this company has been at the forefront of this. Because of the other theaters that I had worked in town back in, you know, 2000, between 1998 and 2003, I didn't feel like there was a lot of work being done that was speaking to my age bracket. And at that point, I was in my mid-20s. And there wasn't a lot of work being done for people who were in their, were their 20s, 30s, 40s. <laughs> and a lot of the work at that time was still you know, centered around an older audience. And I also was keenly aware that there were very few, there wasn't a lot of work being done then that was a little bit more topical, that was a little bit more inclusive, that got to see a, a wider a wider swath, so to speak, of what even our community looks like, yes, right? Yes, and I, And it occurred to me that I wanted to, this was something that uh, was important to me from the very beginning of Road Less Traveled, was that I wanted to tackle issues and include people in our theater company to talk about those issues and to work through those issues, unlike I had really seen other theaters do. You know, I've always believed in trying to create a, a universal theater to some extent because I'd like everybody to come to our theater. All different colors, all different ages, all different genders. I want everybody to come. But that's a really hard mission because, and you know, I feel like we've tried over the years to be as inclusive as we can, which has definitely basically put us on the road less traveled. That road is, is a tough road. <laughs> and uh, we've we've been trying to talk about a lot of those important issues in our community and uh, for 17 years. Well, I think it's reaped a lot of benefits. I mean, I've been to some of the show. I've been to many of the shows and the, the diversity on stage is <laughs> matched only by the diversity in the audience. I think there's an audience out there just waiting for someone to appeal to them. And so that has been, I think, part of the success. That's all I really needed from you. Uh, actually, more than I needed. I'll cut out all of the dumb things that I said, and that cuts it down by at least 20 minutes. Any final words you'd like to say before, you, before we say so long? I think I would just like to say, you know, I'm grateful for the opportunity to talk on the podcast today and to utilize this as getting our message out there. Well, I ran out of other guests. There was a bottom of the barrel. I'm also, you know, grateful for everybody who's supported Road Less Traveled for the last 17 years. And, you know, we're continuing to work hard and, and you know, we want to come back strong here. And we put out a video a couple of weeks ago about how our journey has only just begun, where we were celebrating the fact that we have built now three different theaters, but now we feel like we're finally in our home. And uh, gosh darn it, I'm more adamant than ever that we will have that as our home for a long time to come. And now we just needed to reopen again. I've never seen anybody who loved their theater. I mean, I've been in that room when you just looked around and said, I love my new theater. Yeah. I love my new theater. <laughs> well, I got to design it, and now I want to play in it. So it's sad every day that now I don't get to go and play in it every day. So, yeah. <laughs> All right, Scott, stay healthy. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Peter. Bye-bye now. Yep. 
So that's Scott Barron, a, a go-getter if there ever was one. I am so uh, honored to know this man and to have been around for the longest time as I watched him grow into this superior theater manager. Okay, I'm done kissing butt now, so I'm going to move on to the Buffalo Philharmonic Orchestra and its executive director, Mr. Dan Hart. It's nice to meet you. It's nice to meet you, too. And I was just going to say, I like to see the people I'm talking to, because especially if it's a person I've never met before. But I have to tell you that one of my greatest disappointments while <laughs> doing this podcast is when I had to cancel my face-to-face meeting with uh, Joanne. Uh, I'm sure I would have behaved like a crazy fanboy <laughs> and embarrassed myself, but it was uh, very disappointing. So I'm hoping that I can, you know, get back to that and rescheduling that sometimes when we yeah. get back to yeah. some kind of normal. Well, she'll, she'll be here and she'll be happy to participate. Well, that's great to hear, but uh, oh, we'll talk about that another time. <laughs> this time, I want to talk about you and... Uh, how are things going with the BPO and Klein hands? Uh, you, you've been hit as hard as anybody. I know you've had to cancel a, a good deal of the season, uh, the rest of the season, from what I understand. So uh, tell us what life is like right now. How are things going on Symphony Circle? Life, you know, we're doing all that we can do. Kind of sit by and wait and try to make plans and come up with all kinds of different scenarios and trying to keep each other informed and on the same page. So, you know, we, we have canceled, we canceled uh, about 25 concerts this year, yeah. starting in uh, mid-March. So are most people, I was speaking to some friends last night about their subscriptions. Are most people saying, uh, well, we'd like a refund or are most people actually donating the money back to the BPO? Well, it's, I think it's very encouraging on the donation front. We, just for example, those 25 concerts represented $1.2 million in ticket sales. Wow. And uh, half of that is in single ticket sales. This is just lost. We never got the opportunity to sell them. And then $600,000 was in uh, the value of the subscriptions that people held for those 25 concerts. And today we've had about $100,000 of that uh, donated back. And we've had, I think, $150,000 put on gift cards for future seasons. So it's not like it's necessarily lost revenue that, uh, that that will most likely come back into our revenue stream either next year or the year after. Oh, I'm so. sure. Now, because of the, the building, because of that, that gorgeous building there, uh, are you incurring a lot of costs to maintain the building? I mean, who is still working there? Who goes in and takes care of anything that needs to be taken care of at this point? Well, uh, it has been on pretty much on lockdown. You know, we've maintained a, a, a seven-day schedule of engineers in the building throughout the winter months and still, until it got to start getting warmer. And so now we have a build, building engineer there, seven to three. But now in, in uh, phase two, we are cleared for reopening our offices here at Clement House and also uh, Kleinhands. And Kleinhands has about five to eight employees there at any given time. We have 20 here at the Clement House and uh, we'll be rotating them 10, 10 per day on a rotating basis. Klein hands will be more open. But as far as you know, the Klein hands goes, uh, we've taken the opportunity to work with our property manager to, to try to do a lot of small fixes, like painting, repairs that we couldn't get to. 
so you take advantage of the time now to uh, yeah. accomplish a few things, uh, j just like I'm doing around the house, yeah. trying to accomplish a few things that I didn't have time for before. You're doing the same. Yeah. So, you know, as far as the cost goes, there's there's not a whole lot of cost that we're losing in terms of the client hands because it's it's just, you know, it's just a building and when everything shuts down, all the costs, you know, go down as well. So. And is it a lot more difficult to uh, maintain during the winter months, or is it because it's all closed up and sealed up at that point, it doesn't make any difference? I mean, I'm sure that the humidity has to be just right. Are there musical instruments there in storage that you have to take care of no matter what? Yep, we have our, you know, our library is uh, probably worth millions of dollars. Uh, that's the basement, percussion instruments, uh, all of our different pianos. So yeah, it has to be uh, tended to pretty carefully. And uh, humidity and temperature control is a big issue during during the winter. And are things there monitored electronically with all sorts of fancy modern equipment so that if something goes wrong, you get a little little red light goes on in your dashboard and it tells you, get somebody over here right away? Or does somebody just have to go in there every day and look yeah. and say, well, okay, it seems to be, uh, everything seems to be okay now. It's still a, a stationary engineer situation. So some Still on manual. Somebody really has to be there. Yeah. <laughs> now, do you uh, have other properties besides the Clement House? Uh, what other properties are you uh, responsible for? No, that, that's it. Just client hands. And the, the Clement House is, uh, was bought for us uh, or given to us, what, two years ago now or two and a half years ago uh, from a generous donor. And uh, we. And that's located where? This is the old. This is the Red Cross building on Delaware and, and Summer Street. Yes, it's beautiful. So it has building, big, beautiful. Big parking building. lot. Yeah, 1915 uh, E.B. Green building, but fantastic. But uh, the Red Cross is on the third floor, and they're they're staying out, and uh, we're here on the second floor. So it's it's turned out to be quite a great situation. But Kleinhands, I don't know if you, if you saw one. Our, our big news was that when we repaired the lights around the Mary Seat room, yes. the reflecting pool. I did see. They, they made it in a, a colored gradation, and oh, it was beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, so it was a lot of great feedback from the neighborhood. People were driving there to see it. You know, when the lights <laughs> came on at nine o'clock. So that that was a very cool thing because that that's been a complicated fix because of the kinds of lights and the, the expense of them and all that kind of stuff. But that was. That was kind of a bright spot. Yes, a bright spot, and no, no pun intended. <laughs> yeah. Now, is that something that had been intended for repair down the road, or was it something that, well, as long as we got time, why don't we just do this? No, we just—it's been something we were working working at, and and uh, we have a guy that works with us named James Schellinger who works for Hunt Property Solutions, and he just got the time to do it and fixated on it and found the solution, and he kept—he just—it was a great situation because. You know, someone was telling us it was going to be like $15,000, $1,000 a light to replace it. And James just kept looking at different options. And I think I think we ended up spending like $1,500. So, oh, yeah, man. it was like, I, I was, you know, because it it, it's been, they've been going out slowly over like the last four years. And this, <laughs> this winter was pretty depressing. I was like, I was so upset to drive to the hall during the winter and not, couldn't see the building. And every night, like, one one more bulb would go out. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was sad. <laughs> so see another silver lining. <laughs> so how many people are working at the Clement House there now? Do you have a relatively small staff? Yeah, we have about 24 full-time staff, but everybody's been working remotely. Sure. And we have, you know, 73 musicians on uh, pay on contract. And so uh, we made it, the, the board made a commitment in March to maintain everybody's salary throughout the year. So that was a, a big step for us. We, we've been working very hard on financial security and 
our balance sheet over the past 15 years. And so we were in a position that we could uh, take a chance to do that. So, I, you know, that made everybody happy. Sure. So the staff, the staff, I think, has been very productive uh, working from home. We're still getting a lot of things done. And the musicians have contributed in, in lots of different ways. Uh, and if you've seen our digital content, we basically all orchestras and all probably all performing arts companies all of a sudden found themselves in a position of becoming a media company and all of a sudden producing videos and you know content and so i've been really impressed with uh, what our musicians have been doing on their own and uh, what our team has been able to put together and also it's highlighted another very important partnership with us and that is wned uh, pbs and, yes. and fm station because they've just been great to us and uh, we've really amped up our partnership tuesday night radio broadcasts are kind of like a for many of our patrons, you know, uh, just a great marker in the week to be able to tune in and hear the orchestra and all these great concerts. And, and these are recordings from the BPO archives, correct? Correct. And just yeah. to go back for a second to the musicians, you said that 73 of them are under contract? Yeah, 73. Because I was just wondering if they were all private contractors or if they are literally employed and under contract to the BPO. Because I wondered if they could even apply for unemployment. Yeah, they have. They, the contract is for 40 weeks out of the year. So in any given year, there are 12 weeks of dark weeks, of which many of them do apply for unemployment. And those dark weeks, uh, we've lined them up to coincide with the end of our government assistance, the PPP program, which we got yes. for, uh, we got $1.6 million, I think. So that covers our payroll for uh, eight weeks. And then we've transitioned the, the, the summer week weeks to August so that they can take advantage of the extra unemployment benefit. That's good, because I really was wondering um, who was getting hurt the most by this. I know that many of the musicians do private lessons. Of course, now they're, they're doing them via Zoom or, or FaceTime or something, because of course, we're, we're all learning technology on the fly of necessity. We're all learning how to become uh, more media savvy uh, of necessity again. And, and speaking of which, you talked about your partnership with WBFO and so on. So I'm wondering, have you been trying anything new? Are there any procedures that you've tried recently that you hadn't done before or you hadn't used before? Avenues that were open to you before that you hadn't used that you've tried since this whole quarantine came into effect that you thought, hmm, this, this is working pretty well. We should do more of this. Well, yeah. Yeah, great, great question, Peter. It, it's coming because the, uh, you know, we, we were experimenting with uh, the digital world and, and the ability to live stream uh, concerts. Uh, the first live streams that we did were basically Facebook Live of our uh, Joanne Folletta International Guitar Competition. That was our first venture into, um, you know, getting the infrastructure at the hall to be able to do that uh, effectively. And then just last, uh, earlier in the season, uh, our recording specialist, a guy from uh, Fredonia, Bernd Gettinger, um, was convinced, was trying to convince us to buy cameras for the hall to outfit it so that we could do everything. And, you know, so... Yeah, I was going to ask that question. What kind of recording capabilities did you have? I you you obviously obviously recorded something with the archival recordings, but now are you going to have something much more elaborate with uh, multi cameras and multiple microphones, a, a really uh, high tech 
sort of situation. Yeah, yeah, it'll be a, a digital concert hall. And, and just it, just luckily, he experimented back in the fall without, I mean, I didn't even know about it, but he, he recorded some concerts. So one of the things that we did that we wouldn't have done before was that we took the clips, uh, the video clips, and we've been pushing them out maybe once a month as, as a, we call it a gift to the community. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think we just did the uh, Danny Elfman uh, Violin Concerto with Sandy Cameron yes. uh, this week. And, and so, and, and I think all of us were amazed uh, how good the orchestra, how, how good the cameras were, how, how, how good it sounds. And so we are in the process of, you know, uh, uh, putting that into the hall for uh, permanently. So that, that'll be one outcome and it will give us the chance to um, do live streaming at any time, uh, record things for archival purposes. Uh, really, you know, uh, I don't know if there's how much revenue opportunity it is, but I think it will be very interesting just from the standpoint, like just like our recordings do, but they build a history. They build an archive of the history and the growth of the artistic growth of the orchestra. So, uh, you know, it's a, it is something that will pay dividends for years to come. I'm, I'm very convinced of that. So uh, tell me something. Did you always do um, archival recordings of every concert? Uh, for example, in, in, in theater, they often would say to us, all right, now uh, Friday night we're going to do an archival recording, and they would have to get the union permission and so on and ask everybody if they were okay with it. And then they would do a single archival recording so that they would have a record of a particular show. Did you do the same thing for the Philharmonic? Yeah, uh, most all of Joanne's concerts are recorded. Uh, we ha we have not recorded uh, just for uh, for financial reasons a lot of the guest conductor concerts, but we have now outfitted the call so that I guess you could you could say that we can turn it on and record anything at any time. It's not the same quality, so it it, it is there are truly differences. Like when we're doing Joanne's concert, we have in mind listen. Uh, some of these may be sent to uh, for national broadcast. Uh, some will, some may end up on WNED. Some may end up on a recording because a lot of think times we're pulling out archival recordings and actually making a CD out of it now. So, so the other there's kind of two levels. But theoretically, we would we're soon be in the position that we can record anything on stage, anything that happens in the hall. Anything that happens in the hall simply by pushing a button. <laughs> It'll be to that point where it's that simple. Yeah, well, that's that. That's terrific. And, and uh, I, I just think it's, uh, you know, we're forging ahead. We, we are optimistic that we're going to get back on stage. We are planning uh, a short summer season that we'll see if it can happen or not. And then we're planning on coming back in September. And with uh, social distancing in mind, uh, you know, we've, we've mapped out the stage so that there, we can get 35 or 36 players on stage. Joanne has totally uh, worked on reprogramming the season, so it's more appropriate. And we've got the hall measured out so that we can we know how many people we can get in at six feet apart. Uh, and so, you know. So uh, do you foresee taping off seats and saying, uh, well, you can sit here, but not here, and so on? Yeah, I, I'm not for sure we'll have to do that, but we, we can absolutely give people a ticket that says this is the seat that you're going to have to sit in. I see. So, uh, and it's probably about 550 uh, people, and we'll see. We, you know, we're just kicking around a lot of ideas, and the, the wild card is the government guidance. You know, what, when, when phase four comes, what will they say about uh, public gatherings and how many you can have in a facility and all those kinds of things. So, so you know, 
it's it's okay for us to plan. We have to do this artistic, creative planning, but it it, it will come back to the safety of our patrons and our musicians, and we, we have to be able to ensure that we have the proper protocols in place to to make everybody feel as safe as they can. And of course, things are constantly evolving, so who knows by September what the requirements are are going to be. You mentioned some summer things. Would they be outdoor? sort of concerts or? Yeah, there's one that's been announced that's for August 1st and that's for uh, uh, a collaboration with John Lehrer Dance at Art Park. Okay. And right now, like we have a call today at 12 to try to figure out how that might be able to happen. And then we're still, we're working on two different scenarios. One would be that we do some parks concerts, free parks concerts. And another idea would, the, would be that we move into Klein Hands and do uh, small chamber concerts uh, for a limited audience. You know, again, we just have to uh, prepare the best that we can right now and then then wait for to see if it's possible for us to do it. You know, there's a lot of uh, orchestras that are actually shutting down until uh, January and February. New York Philharmonic just announced that. But, you know, New York, Western New York is different, different yes. market, different dynamics. So we're, we're a little bit more uh, optimistic, but at the same time, the pandemic has showed us that, you know, we, we have to exercise extreme caution and we have to be very nimble and just ready to change on a dime and, and not get too uh, down or depressed about it. Just That's just the way it is right now. Well, do you think that Klein Hands, I mean, the building itself, do you think that Klein Hands itself is, is actually an advantage? Does it actually, is it actually more suited to the kinds of things that y- you've been talking about? I th- I, yeah, I think it's perfect. I, I think we're in the best scenario. You know, a lot of the major uh, orchestras, I would say, are being, in fact, penalized by the size, the scope of their operations. Yes. And, and the yes. kind of halls that they operate. We are in a very fortunate situation that we actually operate the hall for the city and for client hands. And so, therefore, we can do anything we want. Uh, and we take care of the building. Uh, we, we make sure that it's maintained. We partner with the city to make capital improvements when, when and if we can. But the layout of the space is just so natural and organic. It's, it's really one of the most comfortable halls I've ever been in. And I've been in a lot of concert halls, probably you too. But the openness of the uh, Mary Seaton room, the openness of the lobby, there's lots of space for people to go out. I mean, if I go to the Eastman House uh, or Eastman, uh, Rochester Philharmonic, for instance, you know, the lobby is just cramped, mm-hmm. you, you know, you, that's a very logistics of moving people in and out of the building. And with clients having two sides, you know, the side doors for people to exit, Yes, it, you know, it's good. And also the, you know, there's the more uh, mechanical systems there are, are really suited to this because uh, we're in a position to return hundred percent natural air. You know, we don't have to recycle air within the building at all. Oh, is that right? Yeah. We, and that, that is one of the, emerging as kind of one of the bigger concerns of people in indoor spaces uh, is what kind of HVAC you have, what is the level of uh, protection and filtering that you have, and what, how much outside air can you actually uh, circulate. So uh, in, in many sense, that's something that we learned, and um, it, it's, it's definitely in the positive column for client hands. Well, I do think about, of course, the lower level where the restrooms are located and, and there's food and, and the bar and, and so forth. Might those areas have to be somehow adjusted or might you have to make some kind of compensation for what's going on down there? Yeah, I, I, I think we'll have to rethink all that. Yes. I think our idea was that um, 
maybe some of the concerts would be shortened, you know, no intermission, but just to keep people, um, you know, less time in the building, less wear and tear. Um, yes, that makes sense. Less use of the public bathrooms, even for, for that, for the flushing and everything. So, so, so we'll see. We're, uh, and, and I was just going to say another thing, and this is probably true. It's got to be true for the theater and dance world and everything. But, um, you know, our peers across the nation are just a great resource. Uh, everybody is in this boat together. Yes. Everybody is working uh, to reopen, to challenge and respond to the issues of the day. And it was fortunate that um, we, in orchestras, we have the League of American Orchestras. That's our national service organization. And all orchestras in America and youth orchestras, college orchestras are, are members. There's probably 1,600 different orchestras that are members that pay dues and for services. And every year we have a conference and it's usually a three or four day conference in a nice city. Um, uh, this year it was supposed to be in Minneapolis right now, but as the pandemic hit, they converted it all to virtual and it's been going on for the last four weeks. So every day there's a session from like one to two thirty. there's breakout sessions and uh, orchestras are kind of divided up into different groups. You know, the, the big, Big guys, group one is the major orchestras. We're in group two, which is medium-sized markets. And so, it, you know, it was just uh, the timing was, was good from that standpoint that we can all share information about what's going on. So we, we know that Houston might be, the, you know, be giving concerts this month. We know what they're doing. Uh, we were on the phone with the uh, operations manager of the Berlin Philharmonic uh, last week. And she was telling us how the protocols they have for musicians and audience. So, it's it's really been good to see uh, everybody pull together, and and I think that that's also you know a factor in um, our own staff and board and musicians. Everybody's pulling together. You know, there's no one's at fault here. Sure, we we've, we've been dealt this hand. We all need to come together and focus on the future. Uh, we know it's going to be painful uh, at some point, and probably different. And it's going to be different, but but you know. The, the, it, it will pass at some time, and there won't be any go back to normal. But but we will emerge as a, a, a better organization. I'm I'm just absolutely sure of that. Well, Dan, you know it's funny you mentioned that because one of my questions is going to be: I've talked to other people, and this crisis has allowed people to communicate with others in a similar situation all, all over the world. And and I'm I'm curious: did this kind of sharing go on before this? Did you uh, communicate with people around the world about what was going on with their symphonies and so on? I mean, yeah. did you speak to the people in Berlin on a regular basis before, or is this something that has come up that is a unique advantage or a unique opportunity that yeah. the quarantine has afforded you? I mean, here we are in the community of humanity sharing ideas, which I think is a tremendous advantage that has been afforded us. It, it, it really is. And uh, I mean, I think that's a good thing about the arts industry, uh, whatever whatever uh, field you're in, whether it be museums or theater, everybody's friendly and there's no ideas that, that are proprietary, so to speak, for the most part. And so we have a very uh, engaged group of colleagues across the country and the League of American Orchestras has made it such. And so, yeah, we, we keep in touch on a regular basis, but it has certainly intensified during the past three months with a lot more communication and a, a lot more sharing of ideas. 
and it's and it's really you know heartening to see how willing people are to share. You know, the, the, the someone in Houston had to translate these papers about musicians on stage from German to to uh, English, and it just so happens that one of their players spoke German, so they did it. And, you know, just and then it's just sent out all over the country. So it's just it's nice to see that kind of collaboration and uh, cooperation. So. And Dan, before I let you go, and I and I will get, let you go because you've been way too kind with your time. But the way you've communicated with your patrons about these concerts, you said something before about uh, your your uh, WBFO concerts and the broadcasts and so on. Do you have other means of communicating through social media besides the BPO.org website? Yeah, uh, well, email is the most uh, popular way to, to communicate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so that has been, uh, we're, we're careful. We don't want to like overload people. I mean, I could send out a, a note every day, but we don't want, but we'll start to lose subscribe, uh, subscribers at that point. Uh, sort of like the political emails that I get constantly day after day. I've yeah. donated to you once already. Leave me alone. Yeah. But we have uh, Instagram, uh, Facebook. We have 37,000 followers on Facebook. We have uh, um, 8,000 Instagram and, and Twitter to a lesser degree, and those are quite effective. We, in fact, you know, it's something that all organizations should should be uh, doing, and I think most are. But we just did an audit. Uh, uh, we compared ourselves against our peers across the country just to get a sense of like, you know, is it working? Is, are people paying attention? Is there is there true engagement through these things? And uh, what we're finding is that you know, there's no way to monetize it right now, but in terms of messaging and communication, it is being very effective, and as people transition to, you know, just using their phone for everything, uh, you know, you, we, we just have to be there. And, and we're investing a lot more time and effort into the social media platforms. Yes, it's a wave that you have to be part of. You, you can't just ignore it. And, and I think this has just forced everybody's hand a little bit to get, you know, more tech savvy and more involved in, in this social media because, and again, I think this is another good thing. And I'm, I'm always looking for the the silver lining yeah. in this COVID-19 quarantine. Well, Dan, is there anything else you'd like to say? Uh, you know, the last concert I was at was the one with the young cellist, the Mozart concert that I really enjoyed. Oh, yes, the young cellist. Drew oh, Collins. my God, he was yeah. good. And that's the yeah. last one that I was at because my theater commitments often preclude any possibility of me attending more concerts. But uh, is there anything yeah. else you'd like to say to your many fans of the BPO out there? No, I just say, you know, keep keep in touch. Things are uh, fluid. BPO.org is the best way to kind of keep in touch with us. Just just check our website for any updates on programming. And then that's the other thing I would do is say, if you have Facebook or Instagram, go to, go and look us up and like us so you, so you can keep in touch with uh, some of the alternative ways that we're delivering content. But we're look, we're looking forward to it. We want to get we want to see our audience again. I know that every artist in Buffalo, uh, we live we live for our audiences. We live to make uh, to make art, and uh, you know it's going to be so sweet when we're back on that stage. All it will be. There's going to be a party, <laughs> such a party all over the world. There's going to be a party, and I know I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. But the Buffalo Philharmonic is one of the most important, one of the most significant ambassadors all over the world of Buffalo to the arts and the cultural community. 
And frankly, we can't wait to see you back on the stage again. Thank you so much, Peter. Great to have you. Thanks for joining me today, yeah. Dan. Bye-bye. So long. Dan Hart with the BPO. Just a, a great guy, a regular guy. I guess, I guess we're all uh, regular guys when it comes right down to it. And it was really interesting hearing him tell us what the BPO has in mind for the future. Good stuff. And now, as promised, here is a mysterious message from the bunker. So, do you want to know what I've been doing during the pandemic to kind of keep myself uh, sane these past few months? Well, basically, in my mind, I just keep thinking about your magnificent stage performances of the past and just watching them over and over again. In my mind, your, your turn of a phrase, your, your dedication to articulation, the, the whole package, really. And then it wasn't enough just to think about it. I, I found myself at odd hours of the day and night just driving by your house in Hamburg, parking just down the street. Getting my binoculars out of the glove compartment. Yep, just to watch. Yeah. Let me get a little closer here. Yeah. Oh, right. Wow, now that's weird. I would have pegged you for a tidy whitey guy. Wow. Boxers, really? That is a complete surprise. Wow, you know what? Your windows could really use a good cleaning, I have to say. Ma'am, what are you doing here? What? Uh, uh, no, 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 nothing, uh, officer. He's, he's, he's a friend of mine. He's, his name's Pete Palmasano. Come yeah, with me. He's got, he's got this podcast. No, seriously, I'm a friend of his. I'm serious. I know him. Do you have, do you have bail money? No, I am serious. No, what are you doing? What? Stop it. Well, I think we can all agree that was more than a little bit disturbing. And what's wrong with tidy whities I, well, anyway, let's move on to Marissa Wigglesworth, the president and CEO of the Buffalo Museum of Science here on Off-Road, an RLTP podcast. So uh, basically what we want to know is what's going on there at the Buffalo Museum of Science? Uh, who's still working? Are there people there who are required to be there? Is it necessary to keep a certain staff on board? Absolutely made a commitment to a handful of things back in the middle of March when we recognized we had to close the doors to the, of the museum. And of course, we also oversee Tift Nature Preserve. So yes. it was also the uh, Darling Environmental Education Center at Tift. Uh, at that point, we made a commitment to a handful of things around how we would continue to engage uh, with our Western New York community and continue to forward our mission. So that was uh, around providing virtual programming, uh, around um, keeping communications open with our, our variety of stakeholders, and ensuring that the uh, trails at Tift remain safe and accessible. So we have been offering um, an array of virtual programming Two primary things. The first is what we're calling uh, virtual science fair activities. Every day we post on our social media and on our websites instructions to do hands-on STEM-based activities that families can do at home with 
simple tools that are or uh, supplies that they're likely to already have in their house. Mm -hmm. You know, a, a toilet tissue roll or a milk carton or magic markers or string. And really, there, there's a really a, a fun and interesting array of activities that the team has produced. And we're seeing really strong response to those, not only from individual families, but also from some school districts that have really incorporated those offerings into the curriculum that they're asking their students to do virtually. So that's really been a, a quite a successful part of our offerings. And then we certainly are able to maintain and the staff who are producing those terrific pieces. The other um, aspect of the virtual programming that we've been offering are uh, virtual behind the scenes tours of our collections or um, expanded fuller tours of some of our science studios. And they've been going up generally once a week on the weekends, twice a week on the weekends. So that's also uh, you know, a great way to share what we offer. Well, Marissa, are these all things that were not offered before? They're all since the COVID-19 quarantine? That is exactly right. These were not offered prior to our shutdown. And really, to, to a great degree, the reason for that, I would say, is that we really do value the one-to-one the -one engagement, the in-person experience Certainly. as a museum that, that you know highlights our collection. We recognize that the object itself and the opportunity to engage with an object in real time, in real space, carries terrific value. So up until this point, that's really what we prioritized. We were, we were proud that we were able to pivot effectively. Um, and so we're really inspired to think about how do we now make this successful virtual programming part of our ongoing offerings. Well, I noticed I was there last summer with my granddaughters. Yeah, terrific. And I noticed how many things had taken on a sort of an interactive form. Absolutely. And that's been something that's been a goal of yours, well, not of yours personally, but of the Buffalo yeah. Science Museum for, what, like 10 years now. Is well, that not correct? Absolutely. You, yeah, you, you did all that very well, as though they were my talking points, right? It was... It was actually a little more than 10 years ago that the then leadership made the commitment to revitalize and rebuild all of the exhibits in the museum. And today call what used to be referred to as exhibits science studios, because like a dance studio, like an art studio, we believe that today science happens in these spaces. The idea of an exhibit is that it's passive. Something is on display, the visitor looks at it, yes. but it's a passive experience, right? Science is hands-on, it's immersive. And of course, we know that so many people learn more effectively using hands-on techniques. So over the last 10 years, we have renovated all of the science studios in the museum, really thanks to tremendous support from across our community. And we're very proud to offer those hands-on experiences on four floors of our museum today. Well, just to get back for a second to these uh online things, how are those being offered, publicized? Are they going out to members? Because honestly, you know, I live in a bubble and I didn't know anything uh -huh. about that. And you know, one of the reasons we're doing this podcast is because so much... Yeah has been focused for obvious reasons on in the media on healthcare and the medical profession and not that much is being focused on other cultural institutions and we wanted to get this information out but my question now is before this how have you communicated right. with your 
subscribers, with your patrons, with uh, those who are interested in what's going on. Right. No, I appreciate that question, certainly. Um, and we're, we're looking for, you know, any appropriate avenue to share it. So we started by uh, sharing it with our, the folks who already follow our social media, or who have already opted in to receive communications from us. So we do a once a week newsletter to those individuals who have already opt in. Uh, and those are members and, and others, um, but it is a finite list. So, you know, just as you alluded to, if you're already engaged with the Buffalo Museum of Science or Tipped Nature Preserve, you're getting the information, but we, you know, are not as effective as would be ideal in expanding beyond that audience base that is already aware of us. So we do partner with um, some other organizations. For instance, uh, Erie County is doing a terrific job in promoting these kinds of offerings at all of the major cultural institutions in the region. Erie County, of course, as I'm sure you and your listeners know, is a terrific supporter of cultural engagement for our Erie County citizens. So there are some other avenues that put us in front of people who have not already chosen to be a part of our audience. But we certainly appreciate this opportunity and any others that come our way. And what is your presence on social media? Uh, I know you have a website, of course. I've been to the website. Uh, but do you have any other uh, forms of social media? So we've got a website for each venue. So the Buffalo Museum of Science is sciencebuff.org. Sciencebuff.org. And then Tift Nature Preserve is tift.org. Okay. Now, just to get back to the nuts and bolts of things, yeah. back to the building for the Buffalo Science Museum, is there a lot of maintenance? Is there a lot that has to be taken care of on a daily basis to maintain that building? I mean, without people going through, uh, do the exhibits need maintenance? I mean, what kinds of things on a daily basis have to be maintained, yeah. even without the public present? Yeah, it's a great question. So absolutely, there is a lot of obligation. And, and really, when we, going back to that mid-March date, when our entire community closed down, really, yeah. and we made a commitment to a handful of primary objectives, absolutely care of our collection was at the top of that list. As a museum, we care for a collection that has more than 750,000 items in it. That is truly our first obligation. So so yes, indeed, right? We have to make sure that we have to make sure that the building is continuing to maintain the standards, including things like temperature and humidity that ensure that the collection is safe and protected. That's really the first priority. Of course, as we now do have staff going into the building, we're also uh, implementing all of the necessary health um, protection protocols that sure. the COVID-19 situation demands. Uh, so, so there are practices there around each person's own behaviors around personal hygiene, but also our organizational behaviors around cleaning and sanitization, workspaces, staff, public spaces, things of that nature. So. There's a lot of work underway even as the building is closed. I will say beyond that, as we're talking about reopening in phase four, we recognize that there is a tremendous amount of work to do to get us ready for that. Certainly we have to expand our sanitization and cleaning practices. We have to make sure that you know those areas of the building that we did close down and have not had a need to touch since, uh, since we closed are sanitized before we reopen. 
But really, the primary challenge for us, and we've already alluded to it a little bit, is the Buffalo Museum of Science is now a terrifically hands-on experience. Yes. And what we know is hands-on is, is certainly a high risk for transmission. And so we are working through interactive by interactive, exhibit by exhibit, floor by floor, to understand which ones we can open to the public safely in phase four, and which are going to need some adaptation, which is going to be a, a, a little ways down the line, and we will not be able to include it in our initial reopening. Yes, and I remember distinctly when I was there last summer, uh, there were so many hands-on exhibits, and when the kids would be grabbing a hold of something electronic or, or you know, tracing something with their fingers or their hands, there were always sanitary sort of wipes around or, or the Purell around. Mm -hmm. And now what you're telling me is that some of those exhibits, just by their very nature, might not even be able to be included in uh, this reopening mm -hmm. because of the nature of their hands-on quality. No, that's exactly right. And in fact, we are still working through our initial opening plan when we are able to open in phase four. But it looks like right now we may only choose to open one floor. That's uh, the floor of the exhibit that houses our traveling Golden Mummies of Egypt exhibit, as well as a handful of other science studios that are, by happenstance, lower touch experiences than those on the other floors. So we feel that we can open the experiences, the science studios on the second floor safely, but the others, we're still building the plan, and it's certainly going to be a longer-term a longer term process. And I assume that, wow, this is going to be a very complicated yeah. plan. I, I, I can't even imagine what it must be like. I've said to other people, I'm so glad that I'm not in a position of decision-making in a situation like this where you're gonna to have to deal with the public and try to figure out <laughs> how to make things safe for everyone. Are you in communication with others around the country, around the world, even that are coming up with ideas or having to deal with this on their own so that they can help you make decisions and make choices? Are you communicating with others who can help you redesign the wheel here? Yeah, what a, what a great question. Um, and you know, it's, it's a, I would say it's a multi-part answer. We are fortunate to be a part of a couple of the primary industry organizations for museums and science museums. So the American uh, Alliance of Museums is the primary industry organization for museums in this country. And it's that institution that actually uh, does the accreditation that, which is the stamp of approval for our organization that says you do your mission, your stewardship, and your business well, you can call yourself a museum. The other significant industry player is called the Association of Science Technology Centers, uh, and it is more discreet and germane to being a science museum. Both are really marvelous resources and have been stellar resources for this work right now. So, um, so particularly the Association of Science Technology Centers is convening uh, an array of discussions, opportunities to share best practices, sharing of real life information, uh, those museums in other countries or even now in our country that are starting to reopen. What are they seeing? Are their guests coming back? Um, are their guests comfortable using interactives, wearing face masks? Um, they're, they're really has been a wonderful um, a, a wonderful structure put in place to share that now the other side of that is we haven't been here before 
So while the community and the industry is, is doing, I think, marvelous proactive steps to make these discussions and sharing of good information available, there is not a guidebook. And we are, we are writing it as we go. Yes. And in fact, I've been invited to serve on the Association of Science Technology Center's committee around reopening. And this is an international membership. I think there are about 16 or 18 of us who have been asked to uh, make a year-long commitment to continue to identify what are the important questions that we're all facing, how do we best generate the necessary information to give museums the tools they need to make their best choices. So there are resources, but again, it's, it's a build. Well, of course, I know we're not alone in this, but I remember the Buffalo Science Museum from when I was a kid, uh, about 120 years ago. <laughs> but because the building is a very old building, an original yeah. building, does that pose any particular problems for you? Sure does. So, you know, I will say, I mean, we love our building and, and it is a culturally significant SM Wine and Johnson building. Oh, it's, it's a beautiful building. Right. It is. It was built in 1929 to be the Buffalo Museum of Science. It is a cherished facility. That said, it's 90 years old, right? So, <laughs> so for instance, our stairways are relatively narrow. We have only two passenger elevators, neither of which allow six feet of separation for any two people riding in it. So these are the kinds of things we are now thinking through as we look ahead to reopening. How do we communicate to our visitors the right, and I'll use the word rules, and, and certainly museums shouldn't be about rules. Museums should be about exploration and discovery and fun. We might have to implement the word rules, right? What are the right rules for how families or social groups can come and go via the elevators? How do we think about stairwells? Are the ones at the north side of the building exclusively to go up and the ones at the yes. you know, south end of the building exclusively to go down so that we are not asking people to cross paths in closer contact than we know is good for our public health? So we're looking at all of those things now and and certainly you know, our, our 1929 building does present such challenges. Yeah, I would imagine so. Now, I'm sure that building has been updated many times through the years, air conditioning and so forth. But yeah. I'm sure also that many of the systems are, are older. And uh, I mean, yes. what about the ventilation system, which will, of course, right. be critical right. when we start talking about you opening your doors again to your patrons? Absolutely. And that's also part of the planning that we're doing now. Our new health management, cleaning and sanitation protocols will absolutely include an increased turnover of those vent the filters in the ventilation system. So that's all, all you know, part of the planning that we're putting in place. And of course, because of the building you have there, you have a situation where you have a building that must be maintained and, and uh, exhibits that must be maintained. So Unlike theaters yeah. that have closed the doors and pretty much that's the end of it, you can't go in or out. Right. You have things in there that must be maintained. So even without a customer base, even without patrons coming in and buying tickets, you are incurring costs. So is anything being done that in some way will help to raise revenues in the interim? 
Yeah, great question. Thank you. So we did, you know, we, we put an, uh, an appeal out, a mail-based appeal mm -hmm. out to our community just a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, I was, we were delighted by what was a quite a strong response. And, you know, I recognize that, that people's circumstances have changed or altered in such a great variety of ways for so many. So we recognize that not everybody's in a position to make a financial donation at this point in time, sure. um, but certainly some are, or you're, people are able to, you know, recognize it's still important to be a philanthropist. They've made a lesser donation. Perhaps some have made a greater donation. So it, it was really gratifying to see that response. One of the ways, and we, not unlike many others, uh, were impacted when it comes to finances is that our largest fundraising event of the year is traditionally at the end of March. So we have canceled that. We hope we will be able to do some iteration of that event, perhaps on a different scale, I don't even want to say smaller because we don't know, in the fall, we, we anticipate that would likely still be virtual, but that'll certainly be another way that people would be able to support us. And of course, beyond that, you know, I, I think and talk a lot about philanthropy. Philanthropy is actually my background before I uh, took over the CEO position here in Buffalo. You know, what is certainly true is that at any time, anybody can put on that incredible cape, that cape of power, their superhero cape, <laughs> yeah. and choose to be a philanthropist. I am sure I know my organization and I'm sure any one of the cultural organizations throughout the region would be utterly delighted to receive a check or get a phone call and take your credit card information <laughs> at any time, right? Philanthropy does not need a mechanism yes. like an appeal letter or a special event. It is always there. And anybody who does it will always feel good. You need to pick me up, make a donation. There's my pitch for the day. <laughs> That's very nice. Now, listen, we've uh, we've talked about the building. Now, at the other end of the spectrum, let's talk briefly about the yeah, Tift yes. Nature Preserve. Now, of course, that's open air, but there are buildings there that need to be maintained, and there are, of course, probably staff you need to maintain. We do indeed, and again, the the, the, uh, the safety or the availability and safety of the, the trails at Tift was one of our primary objectives. So we actually have uh, a director of Tift who is uh, still working full-time and a, uh, a steward, pardon me, a preserve steward, an ecologist who was working uh, full-time at Tift. And then we also have our manager of programs at Tift, who is working on an adjusted schedule, she is contributing heartily to some of the virtual programming that we're offering. Um, so Tift is a land owned by the city of Philadelphia that we have the privilege of managing. So I would say that you know the buildings at Tift actually require lesser maintenance, right? The collection is the nature preserve. It's yes. the flora and fauna that, that exist on those 264 acres. It is our living collection. So in as much, it's not about you know maintaining appropriate designations or protocols within the building. We have certainly seen a challenging response, however, to visitation to Tift during this period, not unlike any of the uh, city of Buffalo parks or natural spaces, as people spent more and more time inside once the weather finally got nice, we really did see overwhelming visitation. Sure. And sadly, oftentimes people not behaving as is good and appropriate when we have a public health challenge or as is necessary for a nature preserve. The distinction being TIFT is a nature preserve and not a park. So we can't allow 
sports. We don't allow running. We don't allow bikes. We don't allow dogs. And these are sometimes not the expectations of the visitors. So we find that not every visitor was necessarily ready to follow the protocols around six feet separation, around wearing a mask that we were asking. <laughs> well, now yep. let me ask you this. So are, are those your deer who are constantly <laughs> no. watching when I'm driving on Route 5 into the city. We're all slowing down, all the rubberneckers. We're all looking to the right, right? to see all of the deer who are grazing so peacefully <laughs> and sharing the area with the ducks and... So I will say, and, and I'm going to react to, to Peter, uh, and I love that you gave me the opportunity. Um, they're not our deer. No, no. There is certainly, you know, the, the, the deer are, there are a challenge. And in fact, the, the deer are, are uh, significantly overpopulated in that region. There are many, many more deer who call that area their home than that landscape can support in a healthy manner. Um, so it is a concern. You know, we, we love the deer, but we need we want them to be healthy. And so right now that, that circumstance is a concern. Though I certainly do joke, you know, that they're not Tiff's deer. The deer don't care where Tiff's um, property line ends and the and the next property I've line. I noticed begins, that. Right? Yes. They're, yes, they're animals who wander around that region for, for a, a, a wide geography. And yet collectively, there are a number of landowners or managers there that we together recognize that it is a concern and we're thinking about about ways to to you know address it for the for the health and safety of our community and and those rubbernecking on the highway in fact as much as for the health of the deer population well honestly i'm, I'm always surprised with yeah. how well they sort of stay within their boundaries yeah. because uh, you know we have some geese here in hamburg who are always right yeah. crossing south park with their entire family of maybe 20 little <laughs> geese and they're the traffic comes to a complete stop and everybody just waits patiently for them all to slowly yep. Yep. waddle <laughs> across the street. <laughs> now listen, are there any problems that uh, you're still dealing with on a daily basis? Uh, perhaps not about the reopening, but just in general and your daily activities at uh, the building or at the Tiff Nature Preserve. Are there any things that you're still struggling with that have been uh, a problem for you? Yep. Maybe things that uh, are unusual or unique to your particular situation. You know, I, we've really discussed so many of them, you know, that the building does house our collection and that is first and foremost, you know, our mission and our priority. So, you know, we're, we're trying to keep, um, keep that in as the best possible care, you know, even during this time when there's not necessarily somebody in the building for a full day every day. Uh, so, and then of course, reopening will bring a whole different array of challenges. Well, let me ask you this. Have you discovered anything? Uh, new procedures, new ways of doing things that uh, you thought, well, we've never done this before. And, uh, but you know what, it's kind of interesting because I mean, let's face it, in this situation, there's a lot of creativity going on and people are yep. making discoveries about procedures and activities that they may have never done before, but now they're thinking, Hmm, let's try yeah. this. Well, I would say that's certainly true about, about our behind the scenes collections tours and our, our virtual science fair activities. You know, the virtual programming that we are offering, as I, as I you know, noted earlier, it had not, we had not prioritized it previously because we so value that in-person engagement. And yet we're you know, finding our, for instance, our collections tours feature one particular item from the collection and each tour is really only about a minute long and perhaps closer to 15 
50 seconds. So they're really relatively easy to produce mm -hmm. and they're really, they're attracting a, a hearty viewership. So what we're seeing is, you know, for the investment that we have to put in for sharing this, it really is, it, it's sharing information. It's increasing the knowledge of the wonderful treasures at the museum. In little bite-sized pieces that are easily absorbed pieces. and easily yeah. produced. Yeah. Well, that's uh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, listen, Marissa, I don't want to keep you too much longer. I've already overstayed my I welcome, know. I think. But is there anything else that you'd like to say? Perhaps some words of encouragement or hope? Because, <laughs> uh, well, throughout this podcast, I've tried to stay yep. positive, And I think that there will be a lot of good yep that comes out of this pretty horrifying situation yes. that we're all living yeah. through. No, absolutely. You know, we, we are a science a STEM based informal STEM learning, you know, organization, both at the Buffalo Museum of Science and at TIFF Nature Preserve. What we prioritize is helping our visitors build techniques in what really are the, the STEM thinker ways, asking good questions, making observations, thinking critically, looking for solutions. And what we all know is it's those techniques and it is the STEM fields that are going to help us find our way out of the COVID-19 crisis. So while we are doing our mission very, very differently today than we were doing six months ago, we today know that our mission is critically important, more so now than ever. So we're excited to open up again, rebuild, and get back to the point where we're having the strongest possible impact throughout the region as we can. Well, thank you. And oh, oh, the mummy. What's the story with the mummies? the mummies? We believe, and we are very, very close to signing the, the contract that makes it so. We believe we will be able to extend the run of the mummies on site at the Buffalo Museum of Science, uh, Golden Mummies of Egypt, sponsored by M&T Bank. We will be able to extend it into the fall. So as we anticipate a phase four reopening, perhaps in early to mid-July, we will have a, you know, a good number of weeks to be able to invite our region back in to see the mummies exist. It. See it again or see it for the first time, perhaps. <laughs> oh, what a relief that is. Yes. <laughs> I almost forgot to ask you about it. Thank goodness yeah. it came up at the last minute. Marissa, thank you so much for spending time with me today. I really appreciate your taking the time to Perfect. be here, and I appreciate all of the fascinating information that you supplied us with. Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure. You have a good day. You too. Thanks, Peter. Bye bye. Bye bye now. You see, what did I tell you? The Buffalo Museum of Science, I've been going there since I was a, a wee tyke. And uh, it was just fascinating to talk to Marissa Wigglesworth. And now, last but not least, Kate Locanti Alcacer from the Irish Classical Theater Company. This is not the long-awaited interview for that. This is the... This, this can be. It's okay. This is the <laughs> this what the hell is... <laughs> no, no, I'm going to get back to you. In three more years, if I if this goes on. Well, I hope you don't mind that I'm like Vincent's replacement. I mean, Vincent is charismatic and one of a kind, and I'll try to fill his shoes. Oh, dear, dear, I absolutely delighted to talk to you. So Good. likewise, just say what you want to say, and um, okay. Really, uh, let me let me ask you a couple of quick questions, and if sure. we start delving into something you don't want to talk about, that's that's fine. So, were you starting to work on? I know, again, I'm not sure when you were taking over officially in, mm -hmm. in your new position at the ICTC. And by the way, congratulations on everything, Thank you. you know, from that Thank little 
doll face I just saw from him. <laughs> and I don't mean Anthony. He's, he's a doll face too, but in a different way. But from, uh, from Asante to the, your position now at the ICTC. Thank you, Peter. You're welcome. My question is, when did you start? Did, had you already been starting to plan for this coming season when all of this contagion hit and and the isolation hit were you already in the throes of planning next season we were well beyond the throes we it was planned it was planned rights were uh accounted for casting and designers were, was accounted for the whole season the whole season what would what what season number would this be by the way this is the 30th this will be the 30th this will be the 30th and it is our 30th retrospective season. So just a little context, uh, last summer, I started in the position of associate artistic director in June. And at that point, Fortune hadn't retired yet. And Vincent, he's about to retire, but he, you know, this was still a year out from his retirement. And that was my first goal in being, you know, on the books officially was to work on the season because well, you know, Peter, how how quickly things are <laughs> planned and how far in advance. And I really wanted to make sure that with it being the 30th and the change in leadership and a retrospective, we really wanted to make a splash. And so I worked long and hard on curating six titles and oh yeah, the production teams, the cast and everything to make sure that it was sparkling and in line with our mission and innovative. Um, it's announced already, so I don't mind talking about it. In fact, I'm happy to, but we are presenting at 710 this year for the first time. And a lot of great, um, a lot of great changes were in the mix and already worked out. And so the, the plan for the season was in the retrospective uh, you know, term of it was that we would look at some titles from the past and also bring in some new titles and do kind of a little bit of a smorgasbord. And so best laid plans, right? Like we had, we were really excited about it and not all is lost. We're able to, to keep some of the programming and to make some adjustments. And we are still looking to present this upcoming season and we'll be announcing it um, very, very soon. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's, it's funny to see uh, how many lessons have been learned these last couple months. Like it is really about <laughs> being able to be nimble and being able to be flexible. And right. we as artists, theater artists are you know, creative problem solvers. And we have really been putting our money where our mouth is for this one. Um, we've done some, not just pivoting, but pirouetting and somersaulting and <laughs> the cartwheels. So, <laughs> but that was really a couple months ago when I feel like everybody was in like kind of triage mode. Yes. We've gingerly landed in, on our feet, still trying to stay nimble and um, trying to get our sea legs and moving things forward. So a little bit more confident. It's one thing to learn on the job, learn on the fly, but you you had to learn a job that really didn't even exist before. How do you That's right. how do you exist under quarantine and how do you plan for who knows what will happen by September, the ordinary start time for the season, and who knows what will happen in the future? Yeah, Irish Classical has an incredible we have an incredible succession plan in place for the past year you know it was we do nothing if not plan things <laughs> really really well and everything was like all of the steps and all of the action items and all of the strategic planning it was all set for the entire year so 
I had an entire year of learning the job under the um, auspices of Vincent and Fortune, but the job has completely changed. And so I can use those skills, of course, I absolutely can use them, but now we are just in a whole new world. Yes. Uh, so it has been, you know, during COVID and, you know, being at home with our now nine month old. So it's been a crazy quarter as it were. <laughs> Who is, I know that Vincent and Fortune are still involved in some way. I'm certainly, certainly they're advising and they, who, who better to have advisors, but who else is helping you there? Is there anybody still, obviously nobody's in the theater itself, correct? I mean, I assume there's nobody there. Just Todd, who's, who goes in and, and does our expert cleaning every once in a while. Although some of us will head in if we need to you know, grab something that yes. we left that we didn't know we needed. But there's nobody officially working in, out of the building. Who else is officially, Cassie is officially yeah. uh, working? Who else do you have working with you besides you? <laughs> it's, not, it's not just me. It's oh my not. gosh, I, it couldn't just be me. No. It's, we have an incredible staff. Peter, uh, this staff is Cracker Jack, and we are so fortunate to have been able to retain everybody. So we have, with the support of our board and just so many incredible supporters and the, the initiatives have multiplied, but we've been able to sustain them because we have our staff. So we have, Vincent is still with us until I believe when this airs, like it'll be three days after that. So mm -hmm. he's still artistic director. I still have the title of associate artistic director until July 1st, but we have uh, Elizabeth Palladino who folks might remember from audience services um, in the box office, but she has moved to general manager. Once Fortune retired, she they initiated that title and she took over a lot of Fortune's responsibilities. So we have Elizabeth Palladino. You mentioned Cassie. We have Cassie Cameron as our director of development, who, man, I'm telling you, she has hit the ground running and has like not looked back, like <laughs> no dust on her shoes. Like she is just, as you can imagine, just like full steam ahead and has done such an incredible job. We have Deb Winecki, who has been there for su such a long time that she she knows the theater like the back of her hand. She's sure. her of secrets, you know, she's yes. incredible. So we have her on marketing and PR. Greg Natale is our production manager. He's also an associate director and he directs quite often for us. And we have Kayla Storto, who's our admin assistant. You might know her, remember her from our recent production of Midsummer. She played Hermia. Okay. Um, yes. She's awesome. So helpful uh, with so many of these new initiatives. And then we have Ben Verdi, who has taken Elizabeth's position in audience services management. So he's our face of the box office. He's fabulous as well. Just straight out of school and just like has the tenacity and the drive and really wants to implement new measures and initiatives as well. So we've got a great youthful yet like... I was just going to say, it's so great. A, yeah. a, a, lot of, a lot of ladies, which I love. Girl power. Great. I mean, on top of all the youth... You know, you, you've got all the ladies. Um, you got all the ladies. That's all right. The ladies. And you, so you know from the inside, um, from your own family dynamics. Absolutely. <laughs> when when you look at what men have done to this world, <laughs> I, yeah. I, I, really. <laughs> uh, has the maintenance of the building been an issue? Uh, Not so much. In other words, because it's all sealed up and it's summer now, you don't even have to worry about 
you know, making sure the furnace We've is been in there for a couple things. Um, I'm not sure if, if listeners have been able to catch any of our Celtic Connections episodes. Um, we've done some of those in the space. I have, yes. Uh, they've been really, really fun to work on. Greg Natali is so, I mean, his skill set is long and vast, and he has just been on top of it with all of the production aspects of um, Celtic Connections. We partner with Full Circle Studios, who does the editing. So, Greg and his son, Sal, have kind of led the charge on recording a couple episodes there. But back to your question, you know, they do a really fantastic job making sure everything is clean and and sanitized. Todd, like I said, goes in there routinely and does a clean. But we are actually working on our reopening plan now, and we hope to be in the offices later in July. Mm-hmm. like mid to late July. As part of phase four or? It's actually phase two because we're just opening the admin offices. Okay. So, yeah, so that's that's under the phase two umbrella. And so, you know, we've, Greg has been on top of it with all of the purchasing of equipment and making sure that everything is sanitized and ready to go. We actually gave a call to each one of our staff members. Elizabeth and I had personal calls with everybody too, just to talk to them about like what their comfortability level is and how much time they want to be in the space with other people. For folks who have been in our admin offices, it's cool. It's like an open plan, but it's it's not the largest. And even though there's only a, sh- a small number of us, it's important to know what, what people are comfortable with. So we've made schedules and um, you know calendars of when people are going to be in and out. So well, I did see I did see your Celtic connections. I, I I watched Vincent's, but I also saw yours most recently. And aside from it being nostalgic, because I remember being there, know, yeah, the first times I ever went through that theater, it brought up two questions to my mind, which is, in this particular situation that we're in with with the virus and so on, do you think that there are advantages to the Andrews Theater? that others don't have or or disadvantages and here's why I ask because as you were as you were guiding us around the theater there and you're talking about how how close everything is and my first thought was that is so cool and everybody should know that and people who who don't know that just haven't been there because the fact that you're only 10 feet away from somebody is a tremendous advantage mm-hmm. then i started to think well now wait a minute because every time I see somebody shake hands on TV now or hug anybody, all of a sudden my mind starts going to, well, I can't do that anymore. That's too close. (laughs) And I'm wondering whether the Andrews Theater, because it is so intimate and so close, do you see it as having, let's start advantages first, and then let's talk about if there are any disadvantages just because of the way it's laid out. Do you see it either way? Sure. So we'll speak from the point of reference of folks who haven't been in there before. It's the only theater that's in the round in Western New York. And you use the word intimate. It really creates an intimate environment for both audience members and also performers. Peter, you've been on that stage multiple times and performing there is unlike performing anywhere else because you don't have any place to hide, right? This is like what we always say about it, but you really have to use your body in a way that's open on all sides and in 360 degrees. So it certainly keeps you on your toes. From an audience point of view, as I said in Celtic Connections, the first row, you are in the play. Like the lights are on you. We can tell, you know, we can see each other. And oftentimes sitting in the audience, you can catch eyes with people across the playing space or really feel the blood, sweat, and tears, as it were, from the performers. So that very intimate communion between audience and actor, I think, is second to none in Western New York. There's something so 
sacred and communal about being in that space, it being in the round and that intimate. It's magical. So taking that into account, you know, in terms of social distancing, I'm sure every managing director and artistic director went into their spaces, production managers with measuring tapes and you know, t- took a look at, at how everything could work. In our space, it's just not feasible to do social distancing. We could. We would have about 25 people in there. And yeah. I don't know if anybody's seen those pictures of spaces where, you know, 65% of the chairs are gone or seats are gone. And I've seen them. They're heartbreaking. They are heartbreaking. And in larger theaters, I think it works. And I also think it's important to just kind of underline the fact that every theater has to do what's right for them, you know, and we can learn from one another, but our spaces and our patrons and our curation are so different that it's really about what is right for that particular theater. But for us, it wouldn't be financially viable. It wouldn't have at all the same feel of of going to see a show. So we will not reopen with live performances until we are able to do it in a safe and welcoming way. In a way that people are used to. Yes. There's yes. there's no way a theater like like yours could possibly, if I'm interpreting you correctly, there's no way you can open on a partial way. No. There's no, no. Way open and say we're going to keep we're going to just do two person shows and the actors will stay in the center of the stage (laughs) and they will also be six feet away from each other, but they'll be 10 feet from the audience. But now the audience also has to be six feet away from each other. So that, as you just said, that takes it down from a 200 seat space to maybe 25 or 30, 35, 40 at the very much. And that's the, I mean, I think that's way too much because it's also not six feet side to side. It's six feet front to back and diagonally like for our space, that's anathema. So yeah, yeah. yeah it's not the model for us. Um, it's, I liken it to like a small storefront restaurant in New York city. Like those can't open at half capacity or quarter capacity that go under immediately. And so we've been so fortunate with everything. That's just not, not what we're looking to do. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're reinventing and revamping. And <laughs> I understand that you, that you're, you're going to make an announcement in a week or two. Mm-hmm. Is there anything you can announce now in terms of, are you, pl- at least, are you planning to do anything, anything more online? Yes. Are you planning anything more yes. distance sort of thing? Mm-hmm. We'll continue with our Celtic connections through the summer. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been a great way to connect the theater to our patrons, but also to um, keep fun programming, you know, for folks to enjoy and also to share news about the theater. So we'll continue with that series. And then we are looking at a couple more initiatives, some larger projects, some smaller projects to do digitally and online. We've had good success with it. We've had good viewer ratings and comments. And, you know, a lot of our patrons who have been with us for 30 years, they're now moving to Florida or not wanting to go to the theater, even when it reopens, just kind of not feeling like going out. And so the digital platform has actually really worked to our advantage. So even when we do reopen for live performance, we will still keep the online programming going. You will, but that's that, that's not a revenue stream and not from what I've seen. I, and I know some people have done it. Randy is doing it over there at Musical Fair in a very limited way. It's not to the level of, of what our, our ticket sales would be. No, no. Um, however, we are really coming across some unique and exciting ways of extending our reach because digitally it can go anywhere. So we're partnering with different like literary communities, like Irish community, you know, we're really kind of spreading our, our reach in a way that we maybe normally wouldn't have, but now, you know, this, this crisis and this pandemic really asks us to look at things in different ways. And so we're 
we're starting some new initiatives in that way. So no, I mean, we won't make the same amount of money that we would with a production say, but sure. we're push, we're pushing them. You also wouldn't don't incur as many, as many expenses. That's right. Of course. That's right. Because there's not like extended runs. There's not, it's different for the different projects we have going on, but you're right. The production costs are, can be lower. Yeah. On the other hand, your audience uh, could be worldwide instead of just Western New York. So uh, yep. I'm, I keep trying to look at it. We're thinking positively. This is a silver lining. Yeah, that's all we can do for, for all of this, you know. And as I said to somebody the other day, whoever, whoever is the first theater to open around here or anywhere, uh, all eyes are going to be on them. Oh, yeah. To see. Let's let's see what they did right and let's see what didn't go well and let how did they handle the bathroom situation? How did they handle this? So you're not in a position, I don't believe, and this is what I'm understanding you to say, you're not in a position to be one of the first to open up and, and test test the waters. We won't be. Yeah, just with the with the architecture of our space, we can't be. Yes. Um oh, I say that. I mean, I don't know how soon other theater I, I kind of, you know, I'm aware of certain plans of other theaters, but who knows what can happen, right? This is the other thing. Like, and things are changing daily. Yes, daily by by the minute. So, I am guessing overall that we're we're correct in saying that the Andrew Theater will not be the first to open. However, our online initiatives and our programming that we've been kind of revamping it will keep us current and connected. That's great. Yeah. So, in conclusion. You have made decisions about what's going to happen in the future for this coming season. You'll be announcing that in a couple of weeks. We're we're going, this is going to be released on uh, the 22nd, which is this coming Monday. And uh, so within a couple of weeks after that, people will be hearing what the Irish decisions have been made. Decisions have been made. It has been a (laughs) a long and winding road, as they say. Um, I'll bet. You know, I just, in a moment of solidarity, like it's been tough for everybody, right? And so I just, I feel for all of the cultural institutions out there. And I want to thank you, Peter, for giving us a little bit of love, um, the Irish classical friends over here. And I say over here, I'm alone. But you know what I mean, <laughs> the broader connection. Um, yes. And I, one of the major things that I've learned throughout these months is how important it is to help each other. You know, the ASI has done a great job with these coffee talks that uh, some of our staff members have been able to attend. TCG, American Theater, like everybody is trying to solve these same problems. And even though the theater's missions and subscribers and everything look differently, we're, we're we all have the same goal of returning to live theater and to do it safely and to stay current in the meantime. So I appreciate yeah. the extra, the extra spotlight. And as I said before, we're, we're learning uh, from people all over the world yes. because every, everybody, you know, this is not a Western New York problem. This is not That's a right. USA problem. This is a worldwide problem. So many of the people I've spoken to said that, well, they are, they've been in communication with people in, in Berlin and they've been in oh, yeah. communication with people in Bangkok. It's, it's, it's crazy. We have really tapped into our broader network. And I have to say again, I mean, our staff is top notch, but our board has been so incredibly supportive. Like we have called on them, you know, week after week, we've, we've had meetings just, you know, scheduled for that day, just because of emotion needed to be pad. They have been so incredibly supportive. So I just want to, you know, shine a little light on them too, because they have really helped us like significantly get through this. We kind of feel like we're coming out on the other side, cautiously optimistic. Cautiously optimistic. 
Well, Kate Locanti Alcacer, thank you so much for talking with me. And if you don't mind, we'll share the podcast on our page as well. And just oh, please, yeah, please do. It's good to see you. Good to see you too. Thanks for talking with me today. Thanks for having me. Take care, Peter. Bye bye. Bye bye. All the best, Kate. Well, then maybe I didn't vote, but the thing came in the mail, and then I sent it back in, and. Now I've got another thing that came in the mail. Oh, never mind. So there you have it. That's what's going on at the Irish Classical. And that's what's going on at Road Less Traveled. And what's going on at the Buffalo Science Museum. And what's going on with the Buffalo Philharmonic Orchestra. Wow, this was a long podcast. Almost a, almost a double two-for-one on this particular podcast. But you know what? There was so much interesting stuff going on, I really didn't know how to edit it down any further. And yeah, these things are edited, but it was too much good stuff. I couldn't edit anything out. So it's a little longer. Get over it. And did you figure out who the mystery guest was? Of course, it was Lorraine O'Donnell from the Cavanoke Theater, ably assisted by her son, Declan Gray, who made a guest appearance and was her Foley artist, and I suspect was the brains behind the whole thing, if we have to be honest about it. And I cannot thank Lorraine enough for her lovely contribution, but she has raised the bar for all future messages from the bunker. I really wasn't expecting that level of production. But if you're considering being the next mystery guest on the podcast, please uh, don't let that intimidate you. And here's another question for you to answer. What have you been cooking at home? Have you found any interesting recipes? Have you discovered any great things about, you know, your cuisine around the house? And if you have an answer, uh, record them on your phone, 30 to 60 seconds, and send them to me at rltpoffroad at gmail.com. And uh, let's see who we come up with for the next podcast. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening. This has been Off-Road with me, Pete Pomisano. Thank you.